Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Dr. Boyle. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It is January 16th, 2019. I see friends on the video hookup. This is our, also our Pediatric Grand Rounds and our Chad Pulmonology Mini Fellowship Session number two. Uh, Lynn tells me that she has 60 slides, so I can't take very much time right now in the introductions. I will, I will emphasize for those of you who have a faculty appointment at the Geisel School of Medicine, which many of you, if not most of you in the audience do, you, you have received uh, a link to perform um, um, uh, awareness training, sexual assault and awareness training for Title IX. That is going to be required for everyone by March 13th, so please um, go through that training in addition to our e-learnings. Um, but today we've got Lynn Feenan, um, happily to, to present the mini fellowship in Pediatric Grand Rounds, a native of Bennington, Vermont, um, and a graduate of the University of Vermont uh, with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. Lynn joined us here at Chad in 1995 so for the second chapter in her career. She had already had an illustrious career obtaining a Master's in Science in Pediatric Nursing at the University of Rochester, where she also rose to become their Interim Director of Pediatric Nursing at the University of Wisconsin Children's Hospital in Madison and was an Assistant Professor at the University of Wisconsin School of Nursing. Here she has uh, now been for over two decades as a clinical instructor at the Geisel School of Medicine. She is a author of five publications and um, has been awarded since her time here the Robert Kerr Award for Outstanding Service by the American Lung Association, the New Hampshire Asthma Excellence Award, and the Mary M. Contos Care Champion Award from the CF Foundation. Although she worries about getting through 60 slides in 52 minutes, she has presented more than three dozen times on topics like this regionally and nationally. I think you'll be fine. Lynn Feenan, welcome to the podium. Okay, got it? 
Perfect. Thank you. Hello, folks. Sorry about that. Um, Zoe and Bethany and Marianne and Carrie, um, children that I was lucky enough to meet early in my career uh, who changed my life, children who were funny and feisty um, and sometimes spent more time with me as a staff nurse than they did with their mothers and fathers. Um, kids who farted a lot uh, because we didn't have good enzymes in those early days. Um, and they thought it was hysterical, me not so much. So I was bending over them, giving them manual chest PT because we didn't have vests. Um, kids who did whatever we asked them to do, which again wasn't much, it was muco mist. You ever smelled muco mist? And um, mist tents and handfuls of viocase that we knew didn't really work well anyway. Um, kids who never went home on IVs because that didn't exist, so they spent weeks with us in the hospital. Um, and they were brave. And they made me want to be a better nurse. And um, that is my disclosure. Okay. So, um, my goal is to not only talk to you about CF now, but um, to look at the future, which is amazingly bright, and to look back at, in my career, what I think have been the significant game changers um, for cystic fibrosis care. And to have witnessed them is pretty stunning. Is that my phone, Ann Cristiano? It's probably my daughter who's bopping around Indonesia as we speak, by the way. Okay, so first requisite slide. If you ever do a talk on CF, you have to have the mugshot of Dorothy Anderson. She was the physician who recognized cystic changes in the pancreas and lungs of babies and toddlers whose... Um, uh, in pathology, she was doing their autopsies. They were seemingly dying of celiac disease, and she recognized these changes and basically said, something's weird about these children. And she went on to do further research and named cystic fibrosis. So she grew up in St. Johnsbury, Vermont. Go figure. Uh, I mean, I've, I've seen her mugshot for 30 years of my career and never really read about her. She went to Johns Hopkins Medical School. She went to the um, University of Rochester, where I did my graduate work. Uh, she was an intern in surgery, and when she got to do her residency, they said, no, thank you, because dot, 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 yes. Yet she persisted and went to Columbia Presbyterian, um, and the rest is CF history. Okay, the second requisite slide about cystic fibrosis. This is the most common genetic Caucasian life-shortening disease. Uh, five years ago, that statement said fatal or deadly or lethal. We just don't use those words anymore because this disease has changed that much. We diagnosed about 30,000 patients in the United States, and we have over 200 patients in our center. And if you look at those numbers, please pay attention uh, to that number and that number. More than half of our patients are now adults. And adult CF centers did not exist when I started this job. 
<clears throat> this is a primarily Caucasian disease, but please be aware that children of color can be affected. They tend to have mutations that may fall through that safety net of newborn screening. So if you have a child of color and you are concerned that they have symptoms of cystic fibrosis, think about it, send them for a sweat test. It's under $1,000, it takes a couple hours, and it will check a big box off that child's diagnostic list. Um, the diagnosis in the last year um, were 880 in the United States, and the majority of these children are diagnosed through newborn screening now, which, again, is a huge game changer that I'll talk about in a minute. We still diagnose adults. We just had a positive sweat test just like two weeks ago. A 62-year-old man with chronic pancreatitis. Um, so... Uh, even though we are finding these children sooner, um, again, if you have a child that's been screened through newborn screening and you're concerned about their symptoms despite a negative newborn screen, please send them for a sweat test. And we have a new diagnostic category, CRMS, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Another game changer, all of these statistics come from the CF Foundation and the CF Patient Registry, which is a vast wealth of information for us in the United States. Canada has a registry. Europe has a registry. Um, and we use our own outcomes data to make ourselves better. And I'll talk about that because quality improvement has been a big reason why um, people are healthier with this disease. Okay, so the CF Foundation and CDC recommended in 2004 that there was enough data from a study in Wisconsin that I was lucky enough to be a part of to prove that newborn screening made sense. And by 2009, everyone was on board. This intermediate sweat chloride results, CRMS, that's a mouthful. These are children that aren't quite negative and aren't quite positive, and we're watching them. We have guidelines on caring for them. The CF Foundation has written up these guidelines with the help of experts in the field, and we now follow these children yearly to see if they go on to develop symptoms or if, in fact, they will maintain their symptomatology, which is actually pretty healthy children who just happened to, to get caught up in the newborn screen and then had a sweat test that wasn't quite negative. Okay. I'm going to switch a minute to just quickly review pathophysiology. So a really big game changer happened in the late uh, 1980s when Francis Collins and Lapchi Choi and Jack Reardon and really, really smart biochemists and geneticists discovered the CFTR gene. So uh, before that, all we knew is that this was a genetic disease on the long arm of chromosome 7. Now we know that CFTR, cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator, is the culprit, that the gene codes for this protein that malfunctions in people with cystic fibrosis. So without enough normal CFTR, the chloride channel doesn't work correctly, airway surface uh, liquid is dehydrated, thick and sticky, cilia die off, and mucociliary clearance um, is rendered very difficult. Thick, sticky mucus grows bugs, infection, inflammation, etc. And I um, put this in even though it takes a precious few minutes because I love this video. And I use this video to educate our patients and parents. So we're spelunking through the airway. Um, 
Now we're going to go right through the carina. That is not something Lou Gwill does when she does a bronchoscopy. That would be very bad. Okay, where the cellular level, cilia are beating, airway surface liquid is nice and thin, and when you actually look into that cell, you will see that there's functioning CFTR protein, the chloride channel works, sodium and chloride goes in and out, water follows it, and we're good to go. And you and I clear this stuff <clears throat> a thousand times a day and we don't even realize it. But in the cells of people with cystic fibrosis, when that CFTR protein is malfunctioning, then the gate doesn't open um, and water doesn't get out of the cell, sodium and chloride don't get out of the cell, that airway surface, surface liquid gets really dehydrated, cilia stop working, all kinds of little critters start to grow there, white blood cells go to that place to try to make it better, and they actually make it worse by splitting up and adding to the inflammatory process. And this is what it looks like in real life. So this is a pre-bronch photo of that blanket of mucus, you can suction that out and end up with a pristine looking airway, but if you leave that bronchoscope down there for just a few minutes, that stuff starts to bubble up again. Okay, switching gears back. So the CF Foundation is our accrediting foundation. Um, they site visit us, they give us a grant, they ask us for patient data, they guide our care, um, and part of the CF Foundation is the patient registry, which we are lucky enough to have in the world of CF, which has made a profound difference in how we do our work, and I'm going to talk about that. So when I started in CF, the foundation was like any foundation. They put a lot of money, all their money, into trying to find a cure for this disease. They wanted CF to stand for Cure Found. That makes sense, that's laudable. Um, but in the meantime, there were patients and families who still needed care. And so over time, the CF Foundation morphed into a governing body that not only still puts their money where their mouth is in terms of research and drug development, but also in terms of the care of individuals. The foundation hired a few nurses, ding, um, and they, and then they started to pay attention to really important uh, patient issues like care, like a care network around the country, accrediting all of the CF centers. And if you aren't up to snuff, you don't get accredited and you are, you are no longer looked at as a CF center in the country. The foundation doesn't want to do that. They want to go out and help uh, centers do their best. Um, and so they hire or ask, they don't hire, they ask for CF center directors around the country to do site visits. We were just site visited um, last spring and it's a day long effort and team sport. Um, and really actually kind of fun when all this is said and done to kind of talk about what your center is doing and to learn about how your center can get better. The CF Foundation has an amazing website. They do list serves for staff so we can send messages out across the country if we have questions. They have mentorship programs for new CF members. So we have 
people in our center who have been mentees and gone to other centers to learn how to be a nurse for a CF center, and we can apply to actually be mentors ourselves and have those uh, various team members come to us. There are webinars. They run teleconferences for adults with cystic fibrosis. Because of infection control, people can't go to conferences anymore with CF, and so they do it electronically. They author clinical practice guidelines. We'll talk about quality improvement, patient and family involvement. Ding! Um, advocacy. They were one of the strongest voices on the floor of the House and Senate when the ACA was being challenged. Um, they do an amazing job. They're on the Hill. They ding us when we need to know that things are in danger. We can spread that word to our patients and our families. Um, and advocacy is a powerful tool, as you all know. Um, and then they support the patient registry. So this is the 2014 uh, British Medical Journal um, that looked solely at the 10 years of improvement that have happened in CF care simply because of looking at what we're doing and everybody at CF centers across the country and, in fact, across the world vowing to try to do better. It's an amazing journal all about CF, it's worth the read. Okay, so let's talk about this database, which in the beginning of my career was the bane of my existence. <laughs> Still kind of is, <laughs> but we'll talk about that. So um, in 1960, the CF Foundation said, gosh, we should start to keep track of all these patients because nobody else is doing that. And they went to Warren Warwick, a smart, kind of quirky CF Center director in Minneapolis and said, Warren, you'd be a perfect guy to start to help us figure out how to keep track of these patients. And then in the 1980s, um, that database actually became forms, so 10-page forms, paper forms that were sent to all centers, and we were asked to jot down particular points of interest to the CF Foundation. And that information went to the foundation and never came back. And then in 1994, um, it went to floppy disk. There's probably people here that have no idea what a floppy disk is, which is stunning in and of itself. Um, and I didn't know what a floppy disk was, and I didn't know how to find anyone to help me figure out what a floppy disk did and how to put it in the computer and move things from CIS to the floppy disk. But, um, and we were asked to look at things quarterly, so just basic information. Um, and then in the 2000s, things really started to happen, again, because of this quality improvement push. And now the registry is encounter-based, so every clinic visit and every hospitalization goes into this database, and we're asked for heights and weights and PFTs and micro results and who on the team saw the patient. Um, and what are their complications, and what kind of airway clearance do they use, and what are they doing for nutritional supplementation. And it got more and more detailed in terms of the medication that the patients are on. And so those forms uh, electronically change over time because the care changes during the encounters. Um, it is now web-based. I can pull up portcf.org, and up comes the registry, and we have people on our team who put that data in throughout the year, and then the minute I get done with this talk, I'm going to start the annual review for the data from 2018. 
the next generation, things that are always, so the foundation is always figuring out how to make this better. Why can't patients and parents have access to this data? We show them the aggregate data at the end of the year. Why can't they look at their own kids or their own data real time? So that pilot is happening in Canada and hoping to happen in the United States and the CF Foundation in 2020. Um, and my dream, and I'm not sure it's gonna happen, tell me it's gonna happen before I retire, Kathy, um, is so right now we toggle back and forth between the EMR and the Port CF database. And that's where mistakes happen, and that's where people spend huge amounts of time to move that data back and forth. And why can't we, with all this fancy technology and electronic medical records, just push a button and ding, their heights and weights just move from EPIC into Port CF. That's being piloted in 10 centers. I can't wait for the results. And if they're bad, don't tell me, Kathy. Please. Okay, and this is what we get back. So we send that data out, um, and we get these charts back. We, we uh, usually send the data out by late February, early March. It comes back to us by the summer. So all of these, this graph represents all of these bars are a CF center. The red bar is us. Um, it tells us data up front how many, what, what, um, what our nutrition, our BMI is for children, and, and then it graphs for us what is the average in the country and where do we sit. So we have very good uh, nutritional data and outcomes for our CF patients, and we have had consistently since uh, the CF registry has been uh, configured like this. But this is a way for us at our summer retreat to look back and say, are we happy with those outcomes? And if not, how are we going to get better? I'm not particularly happy with being average. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> um, and so even though you can see all of these, this is FEV1, so pulmonary function tests, these are all really pretty good around the country. I don't want to be in the middle of the pack. I want to be here. And my team members know it, and I make them and me accountable for that because this is not just a bar. These are kids' lives. And the healthier they are, the longer, the better their outcomes will be. So as the CF Foundation started to look at the data, this was one of the first slides so what I want to call your attention to is, first of all, what is obvious, the huge variation between centers. If you look at this slide, this is kind of scary to me. This is the lung function, the first time a child is doing lung function in a CF center at the age of six. And I don't know who that center was. I don't care, but you can imagine um, that that would not be an outcome anyone who is a CF care provider wants to see for their patients, to have children at the age of six with FED1s in the 60s percentiles. So huge variation and people who were struggling, centers that were struggling. Now, were these centers poorer or did they have kids that didn't have access to health care like these centers? Or as Jerry O'Connor said, was a calorie different from one center to the other? No. 
And so when the CF Foundation looked at this, and they got a guy named Jerry O'Connor from Dartmouth involved in terms of quality improvement. Um, he looked at this slide and others who worked with him, Hebe Quinton and Kathy Sabadosa. This is opportunity. This is why can't this center talk to this center? What are they doing here that this center isn't doing? And can we make it better for everyone? And so that was a hard sell, by the way, because what it meant is everybody needed to own their own data and everybody else in the country got to know what everyone else was doing. And that's scary and threatening, um, particularly if you're in Boston and there are three, F three CF centers that you, and you're competing for patients. Um, and there was a lot of concern at the foundation level. Um, and Jerry O'Connor persisted and he, um, he convinced the foundation that the only way these centers are going to get better is to come out, talk about this data, talk about this variation, and make it better for everybody. And so there was um, a review of this data, and what it got down to was a six to seven year difference in life for the people who are functioning better, the centers functioning better than the centers not functioning as well. And when you're talking about a disease with no cure, that's huge. I mean, who wouldn't want six or seven extra years of life? This is just another way to look at this. Hebe Quinton used to call this the buckshot graph. So all of these diamonds are CF centers. Um, these are, at the time, the, the goal was for patients to be above the 40th percentile for BMI. That's now moved to the 50th. The CF Foundation is always getting us to improve. Um, and the FEV1 was somewhere in the mid-80s. So if you had patients above the 40th percentile and above that FEV1 median line, you were in the upper quartile. That was the place to be. That's where you'd want to be. You certainly wouldn't want to be down here. But you can see only 30% of the CF centers were in that area when this graph from the bars went to the point graph. And in the midst of all of this, how many of you have read the bell curve? Okay, read it if you're interested in quality improvement of any kind. It's very CF specific, but it's a pretty amazing article in how people outed themselves, started to look at data, went to the big, the most, um, the best CF center at the time was in Minneapolis, um, and then went to a center in Cincinnati that was unhappy with their data and said, we have got to make this better, and recruited parents and patients to tell them how to do that. Um, and it, it's a great article and has been a great journey since this data has been released. So it was a game changer. And the CF Foundation developed timelines to cures. And they started to expect more from their CF centers, that we all follow practice guidelines. Practice guidelines were out there. And some people followed them, and some people didn't. Um, they started to develop more practice guidelines. Lou has authored practice guidelines. I've been part of that process. It's a rigorous um, process that's a lot of work, but it's, it's based on data, and then it goes out to CF centers, and then CF centers get to look at it in draft form, get to comment on it, and then those guidelines are available to us. I use these guidelines all the time 
for insurance companies that are telling us they're not going to pay for certain medications, or to outline to parents and families why we're doing what we're doing. I use them in schools when I'm talking to them about why kids need better nutrition or why they have to pay attention to infection control if they have two students in their school with CF. <clears throat> and in 2006, and this started at small consortiums, regional consortiums around the country that included us, we went naked. And we started small by just admitting to the center in Vermont and the center in Maine, um, here's where our bar is, where's your bar? What are you doing that's better? What are we doing that's better? How can we figure out from one another how to improve outcomes for all of our patients? So there was a development of best practices that came out of those high-functioning centers. Um, we talked about practice guidelines and then learning and leadership collaboration um, that still is happening out of TDI here at Dartmouth. We were one of the first consortiums um, in the country, and we had actually started to meet in late 19, well, it was 1995, I think, right, Bill? Our first meeting in Portsmouth, just to kind of collaborate with our neighbors to realize we've, we, have, we all have small centers, but if we get together, we actually have 450 to 500 patients, so we could potentially do research together. And that's when we started to realize, even before we had these data points, that we, all of us, were doing things a little bit differently. Uh, this is us. We were part of the Learning and Leadership Collaborative too. Um, so we went to um, Baltimore, and we learned from the Dartmouth TDI improvement experts, and we went back to our centers, and we figured out what project we wanted to pay attention to. And it was a year-long process, and it was an amazing process. Okay. Um, and then the center said, well, again, we've got these high-functioning CF centers with really good nutrition data and really good lung data, and we got to figure out what they're doing for these other centers. And so the idea of benchmarking uh, came about. Um, and when, when the foundation and other centers started to benchmark, they noticed consistent themes for high-functioning teams, really good communication mutual respect, intentional consensus with treatments. So even if you were a center with seven doctors, they all did things the same way. Early and aggressive disease management, that seems like a no-brainer, but again, that was not happening in all of the CF centers. Patient and family involvement, duh. Um, and a proactive style to CF care and um, high expectations of each other. I think People on my team would tell you that that exists at our center. And this aha moment of actually bringing patients and parents to the table, again, seems like a no-brainer, but it wasn't happening. Um, and in the few centers where it was happening, they were doing better. And so now 
We steal shamelessly from one another. We communicate from center to center. Those listservs are amazing. We've thrown out three questions in the last few weeks to the country to say, what are you doing um, with medical marijuana? Are you prescribing it? How are you doing that? Do you have care contracts for your adult patients who are not doing what you're asking them to do when they're hospitalized? And you send that listserv message out, and you get inundated with really amazing, rich information from other centers. People send you their templates and their paperwork and their forms. So this variation that occurred in 2000 was an opportunity, and this is what lung function looks like now in this country. So almost no variation. Everybody is better. So a rising tide raises all ships. And it's been really amazing to be part of this process. And this buckshot graph in 1999 looked like this in 2006. This is before modulators. This is before $30,000 a month fancy medicines that are really good medicines. This is people paying attention. And people being brave enough to say, I don't want our center to be here because that means my patient outcomes are not good. And being willing to admit that and look carefully at what they're doing, listen to other people who are doing a better job so that outcomes across the country are now in the upper quartile. Okay. We're also doing things with treatment. So let's talk about that. So when I started my career a gazillion years ago, Children with CF were, again, taking handfuls of viocase enzymes, literally toddlers, 10, 20 capsules at a time, and then we were asking them to eat. It was bizarre. Um, and they were still farting and, and malabsorbing because the enzymes weren't working very well. Um, and those kids were on low-fat diets because we thought, okay, they don't absorb fat well, let's not give them fat. And so what did they look like? Those of us, I mean, we remember those kids. Skinny, scrawny, arms and legs, and pot bellies, and tons of malabsorption. And it seems like a no-brainer, but again, without this data, we weren't really sure that nutrition is tied directly to positive outcomes for lung function. So now we have much better pulmonary, our pancreatic enzyme supplements. We have CF-specific vitamins high in ADEK, $60, $70 a pop, by the way. Most Medicaids won't pay for those vitamins. Um, we have all kinds of ways to increase uh, nutrition for our children. We give them Boost and Pediasure and Carnation Instant Breakfast and Scandi Shakes. I don't care what we give them. I want them to drink it so that they can increase the amount of calories they need. They need 2.5, the RDA. And that seems simple for an adult like me who can, I could, you know, give me a big plate of pasta and a hot fudge sundae at the end. Um, but, but over time, Time, that is exhausting to try to get those calories in, particularly to little ones. So we are very aggressive with using gastrostomy tubes and adding calories the best we can overnight. Because the CF data shows us that once you cross that BMI percentile of 50 percent, this is lung function, and it just plummets, and particularly at the 25 percentile mark. So 
Good nutrition equals good lung health. I show this slide a lot to families when they're struggling with why are you pushing, why do you want to put this G-tube in, what difference is it going to make. This, again, is from the registry, and I can show them that it, it's going to make a big difference in your child's long-term outcomes. Uh, so this is a slide of birth cohorts. So these are kids born in five-year periods. Um, and as you can see with the most recent cohort, this is a bit older slide, um, but we're doing better in general in nutrition. We're reaching that 50th percentile for BMI, um, and we're starting to level off right about this age. So what do you think happens at that age when we start to see that slow decline in nutrition? They go to school. They go to school. Yep. And parents lose control in intake. And kids skip their enzymes because they don't want to wait at the school nurse's office. And they have 14 minutes to eat lunch before they go out to recess. And recess is far more important to a seven-year-old than sitting eating lunch. And schools are really good at providing healthy diets now, which are the antithesis to the kind of diets that our kids need. And so this, again, is an opportunity for parents and me and our nutritionists to educate schools so that kids can get whole milk and they can get double portions of hot lunches. And they have more than 14 minutes to eat. And they can carry their own enzymes so they don't have to walk to the school nurse's office and wait in line to get the enzymes to run back to now have eight minutes to eat. <clears throat> And this is what nutritional treatment looks like. High salt, high fat, take your enzymes with a first bite of food. We don't do soda anymore in the hospital, thankfully. Um, this is a four-year-old, and look what she's got on her plate. So like four chick chicken fillets, a hot dog, potato chips, an orange, yay! We do try to teach healthy calorie input. Um, we're not all about junk food, um, but it, uh, it, it's a struggle for families to eat healthy and still get the number of calories in that they need. Okay, airway clearance and what we have to offer in terms of, of um, antibiotics has changed drastically over my career. So early on in my career, I was opening a vial of gentamicin IV and sucking it out with a needle and spritzing it into a neb cup and hoping nothing bad was going to happen to that patient because <laughs> I had no idea what other, you know, kind of stuff was in that gentamicin. And that's all we had. And now we have Dornase Alpha and hypertonic saline and inhaled tobramycin and inhaled castin and inhaled amicacin. And we watch our kids' bugs and we treat them appropriately. We have all kinds of gadgets to do airway clearance. We don't just do manual chest PT anymore. I used to work at a CF camp before we stopped camps because of infection control. Chest PT, manual chest PT is exhausting. 20, 30 minutes, two or three times a day. And oh, by the way, some of our families had two children. I mean, you could see that that would be all you would be doing as a parent. We had parents who had carpal tunnel syndrome, literally, from, from pounding on their kids. We're smarter in terms of the antibiotics we use, a lot of oral, a lot of inhaled, and then when we're pushed, we, of course, use IV antibiotics. We have ports and pick lines that didn't exist early in my career. Uh, we still teach manual chest PT to infants. 
um, either by hand or with palm cups. And some of our patients still really like manual chest PT. And if they think that it works better than the vest, then so be it. But we also have these gadgets. So vibratory devices that kids can do at a young age and by themselves. Check out this chica. <laughs> Small vests. I'm glad to know that this baby is actually nestled in that. I worry about head control with the vest on a tiny baby. Um, this is the newest game changer in our armamentarium. This is a portable vest. So it's heavy, but people can strap it on, adolescents and young adults, and they can walk their dog, or they can do housework, um, or they can just sit at their desk and study. It's quieter, and they can get up and go get something to eat and not be tethered to the compressor. And they can watch their favorite Disney princess movie and be independent in airway clearance. So while this little one was doing this, mom was doing manual chest PT on her infant daughter and sister to this child. Or they can go on their honeymoon and sail with their new husband doing their treatments. Okay. And then as with, with all diseases that start to age out, we started to recognize there were more, more comorbidities and complications. Again, these didn't exist in my early years because people didn't live long enough to, for us to even know that they had diabetes. So CF-related diabetes is an important thing to know about because it affects nutrition and lung function long-term, liver disease, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, anxiety and depression, all of the things we are being asked by the CF Foundation to screen for on a regular basis because we know that all of these things impact long-term outcomes for our patients. So this is our adventure through CFRD screening. And about 10 years ago, our bar was about here. About 70% of our kids were being screened. And it made me crazy um, because there was no reason for it. We saw these kids. It wasn't that people weren't coming to clinic appointments. That certainly happens to my friend Nikki Felicetti on the adult side. It wasn't happening with us. It was just that we were missing opportunities to do screening. And after three or four years of our numbers being that low and me having a hissy fit at retreat every time I pulled up that graph, um, I think, honestly, it was our team just saying, oh, my God, we've got to shut her up and figure out how to make this better. Um, and I will tell you that as of December 31st, 100% of our kids were screened for CF-related diabetes this year. And why is that important? Because if we miss that diagnosis, we know their long-term nutritional and lung function outcomes are not going to be good. And because I'm high-functioning and high-achieving, and I want our bars right there. <laughs> we screen for complications, and when you screen for them, you find them. Uh, the biggest initiative through the CF Foundation recently was to push us all to do better um, mental health screening. And so now PHQ-9 and GAD-7 are part of our armamentarium for 12 years and up. We screen parents. We are educating our mental health providers in the community about what this disease is like so that when we do identify patients that are in need of help, we can find them help. Who wouldn't be depressed and anxious facing this disease? Um, okay, 
And now, drum roll, uh, the biggest game changers, certainly in terms of treatment, um, are the modulators, the CFTR modulators, also looked at as correctors and potentiators. So since the early days of Francis Collins figuring out that there was the CFTR problem, there's been really, really smart people recognizing that there are many mutations that cause cystic fibrosis, actually about 1,700 plus, and that these mutations code for different malfunctions of that protein. So this accounts for some of the difference we see in phenotype. You know, why, why we have kids who are 18 and 20 who have never been in the hospital and kids who are two who have been, in addition to variables like psychosocial issues and adherence, et cetera. But we know that genetic mutations cause different problems with the protein, which then cause different problems with the chloride channel. And what is also known is that if you have some functioning protein, it can get up and at least start to open that chloride channel. It's not perfect, but it's better, and airway surface liquid is a little less dehydrated. And so as people started to realize this, the CF Foundation invested a boatload of money with some biogenetic companies to say, you got to help us figure out how to take these changes and the resulting protein defects so that we can make a difference in how the chloride channel works. Huge game changer. And this is the timeline of this. So, you know, 1989, the gene was cloned. You know, a few things happened. People were paying attention kind of behind the scenes, smart biochemists and geneticists. But it literally wasn't until, well, it was the late 2000s that, that um, the CF Foundation, with some money from the Gates Foundation, started to partner with biogenetic bio, uh, research companies. Because who's out there looking for expensive treatments for 25,000 to 30,000 people? Not many companies were up for that because they don't get a big return. We'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> um, so the CF Foundation went out looking for those companies. And as of 2012, the first uh, modulator, Ivacafter, hit uh, the market, and, and it's just been a whirlwind since then. Okay, so we now have Kaleidico, Ivacafter, or Candy, Lumencafter, Ivacafter, and Simdico, Kezacafter, Ivacafter. They are, they are um, made to specifically treat the CF gene mutations, so to get these things paid for, we have to prove that our patients have those specific mutations, and these drugs are actually changing the CFTR malfunction. People who are on these drugs are getting re-sweated, and their sweat chlorides are normal or getting close to normal, which is pretty amazing. There's, with these three drugs, there's been a significant decrease in pulmonary exacerbations, 30 to 40%. One of our moms is an LNA here, and last week I was in line getting soup, and she happened to be standing behind me, and I turned around and said, oh, hi, and she said, oh, my God, Lynn. So her daughter just aged into being able to be on one of these medicines, and just out of the blue, she said, she's had three colds that have lasted three days instead of three weeks. I haven't had to call you 
when she's sick. She's gained five pounds since she's been on this medicine. So these are really big game changers. However, even with all of this, there really was not a huge difference in pulmonary function tests. Some people saw some and felt some, and some people didn't. Uh, what did I say about the return on the dollar? Um, now, I'm not going to go into my love-hate relationship with Vertex because they are really doing amazing things. Um, but at some point in time, that, that breaks the bank, particularly of small Medicaid uh, states. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Now, here's the new thing. The triple combo is the next generation. So they're taking Simdico, which has got Tezacaftor and Ivacaftor, and they're adding other compounds to see what's going to happen. If we have better correction of that protein, is it going to make a difference? And the difference is stunning. And at the end of the year, a news blitz went out to CF centers to say that in a very short period of time, we're starting to see not small, but really big changes in lung function. Giving people 14% back of their lung function gives back years and years and years of life. And the goal is to treat 100% of the defects. This is treating about 90%. The thing that we need to look at in the future is getting this down to infants. So you start at age 12 and up, and then you go 6 to 12, and then you go 2 to 6 to make sure things are safe. And then eventually, and hopefully, we will have these medications that we can give to infants of really young ages so we can correct that protein right from the get-go. But don't forget that in the midst of all of this, this is an extremely expensive disease. And the CF Foundation has put their money where their mouth is with this as well. And they have reinvested money with the Healthwell Foundation. And now patients uh, can apply for up to $15,000 a year of grant money to help them with co-pays and with certain things that aren't covered by insurances. So the future is bright. And I can't talk about this because to me this is science fiction and it's happening right now. So snip out that little portion of the long arm of chromosome 7 and put in the corrected version and right from the get-go the child's gene is corrected. Uh, we have patients, our adult patients who need lung transplant. There's research at the University of Pittsburgh looking at bone marrow and, and organ transplants together to decrease Increase rejection, which would be huge for our patients who have to go through lung transplant. And then bone marrow and stem cell transplant is being looked at for this disease and many others. This is the CF Foundation pipeline, just in general. Everything that's at the top are things that have reached the market. The CF Foundation invested $100 million this year looking into new anti-infectives. Because even with all of these correctors and potentiators, people still get sick. We have more adults in our center, and the median survival has increased drastically. And this, this is correctors and potentiators and quality improvement. It's the all of it. So what's the future of CF care? Our patients are old enough to need colorectal screening. And if you think your prep is bad, <laughs> this is a three-day journey into Golightly, et cetera. Thank you to my amazing team. 
also members of our team. This little guy went home from clinic and wanted to dress like Dr. Gwill that day. <laughs> um, Sam Neff, Ambrose is a college student, so is Sam. He's a Dartmouth student. He is the cover boy for Geisel Medical School and is currently on campus doing research in CF. Jack Burnham and his parents have always been part of our team. Jack and I have done lectures um, on Geisel campus for 10 years. He's in college, and I think we may have done our last lecture together. And that makes me sad, but makes me happy that he is a beautiful young adult with this disease. Um, and I did not make this slide. I wish I could take uh, credit for it. Worth Parker did it. But you got me on this journey. And um, <clears throat> you encouraged me to go to grad school, and you hired me back, and you did an amazing job with those kids that we both fell in love with. And so I thank you, sir. William just, of course, shared that chapter one, which I didn't present earlier, was since the nurse in the old hospital in pediatrics. Yes. Dr. Rochester. Oh my God, Anne. See? <laughs> I do. That happens to us all the time. Um, the CRMS, is there a genetics? Is there a genetic component? I mean, what are the differences in genes of, of that? So there are there are certain mutations that seem to be more related to CRMS. Um, but not always. So we, we're tracking R117H is a mutation that has some functioning CFTR protein. Um, and there are others um, on the list. So that's one of the reasons why we want to diagnose these kids. They're part of our registry so that they are in a separate category, but we can longitudinally over time, we and all centers in the country continue to track those children so that we understand better what's going on. We see them a couple times a year when they're first diagnosed, and then we see them annually. Lynn, that was fantastic. Thank you very much for that grand rounds. Um, as somebody who takes care of a lot of adolescents and young adults in my practice now, and you've got some beautiful pictures there of some of the young adults that you've cared for for the year, this could be a whole separate grand rounds, I understand that, about the transition of care from your pediatric center to your adult center, getting those kids, young adults now, on their insurance plan as opposed to their mm -hmm. parents' insurance plan, getting them from Medicaid to adult Medicaid. I have a lot of complex patients who just drop after they turn adults because they can't find a provider, they can't get insurance, they can't make that transition. Right. So I don't know if you can give one or two lives about how it works at the CF Center. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and that's, again, not us. That's the foundation. I mean, the foundation, as they started to see people aging, said, if you want to be a CF Center, you've got to have an adult center connected to you. And some centers had trouble finding adult providers. We did not. Bill Boyle mentored Worth Parker so that there was someone to take these patients when they got to be 20 years old. Um, we have a pretty active um, transition program. We're always looking to get better, but we start seeing kids by themselves at age 12. We start 
rehearsing with parents about the things that they need to hand over to their adolescents. Uh, they meet our adult team when they're about 16 or if they're hospitalized so that they understand who these people are. Some people we transition slowly. Some people say, I'm ready to go. I graduated. I want to go to an adult CF center. Um, again, there's always room for improvement, but we are graced by a great adult center who also happens to physically be in the building. And some centers struggle with that. You know, those people have to go across the other side of the city or even to a different community for an adult provider. But the bottom line is the CF Fund, if you want to be an accredited CF center, you've got to have an adult center partnered with you, and you've got to make that transition happen. We have social workers who would do a lot of talking to our patients about insurance um, so that they make sure that if they're on Medicaid at age 18, they can transition when they age out of some of those programs. And, we, and that doesn't happen with my vent patients, Kathy. There's like, it's a void to get to move those kids on. But it, it, it is really a model, I think, for how transition can happen correctly. Well, as you say, the CF Foundation is a model, and, and even one small thing you had in there in terms of um, screening for low-bone density, we use the CF Foundation guidelines for many other chronic diseases because no other disease state has identified that. But, right. but the mandate of having an adult system on the other side, I mean, the, 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 the techniques are all the same. Right. It's just having a receiving physician on the other end for these. Right. Right. And we get paid for that data. We give them full data, and and they give us a CF grant. And if our data is not full, we don't get paid. Which is why now that this talk is over, I have to focus on the CF data for the end of the year, which is due in February. Um, so I'm assuming there are kids that live in places where there is no accredited foundation anywhere nearby. That's correct. And so do those kids move, or do they, is there some sort of way that it can remotely get care? Because they, they have yes. CF, and if there's no one accredited, they still have to be taken care of. Yes. Yes. To all, I mean, most families don't move. Um, most families, they may have to drive. So even in Wisconsin, we had people from northern Wisconsin who drove five hours to get to us. When I came here and people said, you have to go to Manchester because patients won't drive up, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like we had dairy farmers in northern Wisconsin milking their cows at 1 o'clock in the morning and driving down to us, particularly if they were Medicaid because they couldn't go out of state and go to the, the center in Minneapolis, which was closer. So all of the above, Jolene. Uh, Kathy, there are a couple, one state? Couple states without accredited CF centers. I think Wyoming. Wyoming. Yeah. You know, vast Wyoming. And so those people move and go to northern Colorado centers or Idaho centers. Um, Seattle Center used to fly up and provide care in, in Alaska. So the foundation does make sure that people are covered to the best of their ability, and they're always looking for who wants to be a CF center in some of those states that don't have one. But CF centers also do outreach. Right. You can take a team, you can take your team and move it to an outreach center to, to, to meet some of those needs. I just remember um, when I was a resident and you gave us a talk, and you showed this one slide that I've never forgotten where there was this little tiny kid 
and this enormous table with of meds. one day's worth of therapy. So it's hard to do that kind of stuff remotely. And I know things have improved since those, because it was a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, I can't, something that complex and that every day, all day, all the time seems hard to do. Totally. Remotely. And it is for everyone. I mean, I did not finish a, a course of antibiotics for Lily. Hardly ever. <laughs> I'm saying that in front of her pediatrician. I mean, you know, I, I, I just missed doses. And, and that was two weeks worth. So what we are asking families to do is, is beyond phenomenal, honestly. And I think we lose track of that. Um, and it's an important thing not to lose track of. It's tough with being phenomenal as well. You met it in on time and we'll get back to the